0: Welcome back to Horror Science, a podcast exploring the facts behind your favorite scary movies. I'm your host Olivia Eiler. This week we'll be looking at Let the Right One In, a Swedish film directed by Thomas Alfredson and distributed by Sandrew Metronome in 2008. The film is based on a book of the same name written by John Avita Lingvist, published in 2004. Just as a warning off the bat, this is probably going to be the most spoiler-filled episode of Horror Science yet, so pause now if you don't want the ending ruined. It's also worth mentioning that this episode works off of the original 2008 Swedish film. If you aren't into reading subtitles, an English remake titled Let Me In was released in 2010. I haven't seen the American version, but I've heard there are quite a few key plot differences between the two. Anyways, Let the Right One In follows a twelve-year-old boy named Oscar, who lives with his single mother and suffers at the hand of some nasty school bullies and an alcoholic absentee father. Little Oscar's life seems turned around when he meets a cute girl from the apartment next door, Ely. Um what <laughs> He gets a crush, he takes up weightlifting, and he gives the bullies a piece of his mind. But things aren't that simple, because it turns out that Ely is actually a 200-year-old male vampire who moved into the neighborhood to find some new victims. I tried to organize this episode as chronologically as I could, but it's been a couple of months since I last saw the film. So first, I'm going to look into the medical links to vampires' reactions to sunlight. Next, I'll look into a couple of case studies about child-adult crime duos, followed by an explanation of the nutritional potential of blood and the history of Morse code. Next, I'll look into what would really happen if someone poured hydrochloric acid or any other corrosive chemical on themselves or someone else. And finally, I've got a study that relates to the question of how long an individual can hold their breath underwater. If you haven't seen the movie and you just listened to the podcast for the science portion, these research topics probably seem a little mismatched and random, but I'll try to explain as best I can how they relate to the film's plot as this episode goes along. One of the first things we learn about Ely is that she can only come out at night. Growing up with the American media, this was a big red flag that something was up, but I can't speak for the Swedish media experience. So throughout the film, we see Ely sleeping in boxes and bathtubs, hanging out in interior rooms, and only hitting the neighborhood jungle gym at night. And one of Ely's missed connection victims burst into flames after the blinds to her hospital room were opened. This leads into the first thing I want to look at. There are a lot of pervasive vampire myths, like they drink blood, burn in the sunlight, and have a subpar body temperature and pale skin. The interesting thing to me is the connection that exists between some of these beliefs and actual medical conditions. Tuberculosis comes up pretty often in the vampire conversation, the disease makes you pale and weak, leading you to stay in bed all day. Um, and it doesn't help that one of the symptoms of tuberculosis is the coughing up of blood. But, I feel that if you as a listener enjoy both science and horror movies, you're probably already familiar with the tuberculosis Dracula link. I wanted to narrow in a little more and see what sort of medical explanations there might be for sensitivity to sunlight. The first case I found isn't nearly as intense as bursting into flames when you step outside but it's a good starting point to look at the unique reactions to sunlight that some people have. This information comes from a 2014 Mayo Clinic article titled Polymorphous Light Eruption. And as always, you can find the links to this source and all of the others that I'll reference throughout the episode on the landing page for this episode at horrorscience.x10host.com. Like I said, polymorphous light eruption is somewhat of a stepping stone, so don't get too excited just yet. I wish there was an abbreviation for this condition, but there isn't. Um, So polymorphous light eruption refers to a rash that's composed of itchy red bumps. This happens in people who have a high sensitivity to the UV radiation that comes along with sunlight. This rash will normally break out in the spring or early summer and disappear within a few days or weeks. This is because the skin becomes less sensitive after repeated exposures to sunlight. Unfortunately though, this exposure-tolerance combo doesn't carry over through the winter, so individuals affected by polymorphous light eruption will usually experience it for several years. The rash is most likely to pop up in areas that are covered in the winter and exposed in the summer, like the v-neck area on a t-shirt or the tops of your arms. Self-treatment works most of the time, uh, things like wearing sunscreen, avoiding being outside between 10 and 3, and putting ice on the rash. But, if the rash is persistent or unbearable or accompanied by blisters and swelling, you might need to see a dermatologist. Drugs used for treatment, um, actually it's closer to management than treatment, include anti-itching cream and pain relievers. There is one more extreme option that's used for prevention, and that's phototherapy. Year round, you can be given doses or exposures to UV light which will help you keep your tolerance throughout the fall and winter. Some doctors will combine phototherapy with a drug called sorolin, which makes the skin more receptive to the treatment. Side effects of sorolin include nausea, headache, and itching. So you get to keep the itching and trade in a rash for nausea and headache. Good stuff. Uh, So now I'm going to jump from polymorphous light eruption to porphyria, which is a pretty big leap. This information once again comes from the Handy Dandy Mayo Clinic in another 2014 article titled Porphyria. Porphyria is a blood-related disease, so usually inside of the body, eight different enzymes or proteins bind together to form something called porphyrins, which then combine with iron to make heme, which is one of the components of hemoglobin. So if you missed that day in health class, hemoglobin is the part of blood that transmits oxygen from the lungs to the rest of the body, and that's why porphyria causes so much more damage than polymorphous light eruption. Porphyria is genetic, resulting from a mistake in the DNA that causes a deficiency in one of those eight enzymes. This deficiency leads to an excess buildup of porphyrins. This disease can show up if the wrong genes are passed on from one or both of the parents. If you think your family's safe, think again. You can have something called latent porphyria, which means that you have the bad genes, you just aren't showing the symptoms. You can, however, pass those defective genes on to your children. There are two types of porphyria, cutaneous and acute, and I'm going to start with the less severe of the two. Cutaneous porphyria results from an oversensitivity to sunlight. With this type of porphyria, symptoms can begin in early childhood and usually last for several days. Symptoms include redness and swelling of the skin, blisters that take weeks to heal, itching, scars, skin discoloration, and red urine. When you go to the doctor, they'll run blood, urine, and stool tests to rule out any other possible causes. Then, the most common treatment is phlebotomy. Uh, It sounds like medieval science, but this works because removing blood from the body also removes iron, which in turn decreases porphyrin levels. Acute porphyria takes it to the next level, and it can actually put you in the hospital. Acute porphyria attacks aren't related to the sunlight. They just pop up. Symptoms usually last one to two weeks and improve very slowly. These symptoms are really intense, um, and I'm just going to read the list off straight from the Mayo Clinic article. Here it goes. Severe abdominal pain, swelling of the abdomen, pain in your chest, legs, or back, constipation or diarrhea, vomiting, insomnia, heart palpitations, high blood pressure, anxiety or restlessness, seizures, mental changes such as confusion, hallucinations, disorientation or paranoia, breathing problems, muscle pain, tingling, numbness, weakness or paralysis and red or brown urine. Unlike cutaneous porphyria, the acute form attacks the nervous system instead of the skin. If you have these symptoms, you're going to head straight to the hospital to get some glucose, IV fluids, and hemin injections, which will limit your body's production of porphyrins. If I had to take my pick, I'd go for the cutaneous form. The next thing I want to dive into is the relationship between Ely and his caretaker at the beginning of the film, Hokan. Uh, Initially in the film, it seems like Oscar assumes that Hokan is Ely's father. With the knowledge that Ely is actually 200 plus years old, uh, it's safe to say that Hokan is not the father. Somehow, Ely was able to convince this middle-aged man to accompany him on his travels and serial kill some innocent victims to keep him fed. Uh, The film doesn't give any explanation for how he pulled this off, but if any listeners have read the book or caught something that I didn't while watching, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, What I wanted to look into initially for this segment was if there were any cases involving a serial killing duo, or team even, uh, with a child at its head. I think it's a pretty good thing that I wasn't able to find any documented cases of this, but if you know otherwise, once again, uh, shoot me out an email or a tweet. I was, however, able to find a recent case out of Russia of a biological family of serial killers, uh, with one of the members just 13 years old not too far off from the 12-year-old appearance of Ely. This story comes from two sources, a 2015 article from the Investigative Committee of the Russian Federation titled, Inessa Tarverdieva and Members of Her Gang to Stand Trial for Attacking Citizens and Law Enforcement Officials, and a 2013 article written by Alec Lunn for The Independent titled, Authorities Accuse Russian Couple of Robbery and Murder in Bonnie and Clyde-Style Crime Spree. These crimes took place in the Rostov region between July 2007 and September 2013. Crimes included creation and membership in a gang, murder, robbery, and illegal circulation of firearms. What really stands out about this case is how big of a family affair it was. In 2007, a former nursery school teacher in her 40s named Inessa Tarverdia entered some financial trouble and harbored some intense resentment towards the police. Somehow, she came to the conclusion that starting a gang was the best possible solution to these problems. So she recruited her husband, Roman Podkapave, her sister, Anastasia, Anastasia's police officer husband, Sergei Sinelnik, and her own two daughters, Victoria and Anastasia. It's important to know that the youngest, Anastasia, was never formally charged in the crimes but some reports concluded that she must have been at least knowledgeable, if not directly involved in her family members' activities. Inessa and Roman were the masterminds behind the gang's activities, planning attacks and keeping track of the finances. Sergei took care of some of the more technical aspects. He helped conceal evidence, drove the getaway vehicles, and assisted in selling the stolen firearms. He also contributed big time by giving the other gang members a police radio which they used to listen in on police conversations. Altogether, the gang was responsible for up to 30 murders. Some of the more high-profile murder victims included SWAT team commander Dmitry Chudikov, his wife, and his two children in 2009. The group ran into some trouble on September 8, 2013. Police noticed the family attempting to get away from the scene of another murder. Shots were fired between the gang and the police, resulting in the death of an officer and a Roman. The other gang members were apprehended and sent to trial. So this isn't exactly the type of case study I was seeking out for this episode. In Let the Right One In, little 12-year-old Ely serves as the boss. It's at her command that the paternal figure of Hokon goes out to kill. But I did feel like the Tarverdiva gang case served well in proving that family relationships and violent crime can intermingle, and it's not unheard of for someone under the age of 18 to get involved. The next segment I want to move into involves the reason behind Ely and Hokan's serial killing, the acquisition of blood. I think it's a safe assumption that most people are aware of the existence of vampire bats. So what I wanted to do for this portion of the show was look into what biological and genetic factors allow these bats to survive on blood. After that, I'm going to go over a few more examples of bloodthirsty animals that diverge a bit from the usual bats, ticks, and leeches. This first source is a 2008 article written by Ewan Callaway titled, How Vampires Evolved to Live on Blood Alone. According to this article, vampire bats emerged about 26 million years ago and they most likely evolved from insect-eating bats that used large mammals' bodies as a hunting ground for parasites. A study led by geneticist David Liberlis explored the genetic variations that allow three species of vampire bats to survive on blood alone. All three species have special gene adaptations related to plasminogen activators, referred to as PAs. PAs play a role in preventing coagulation, and they aren't unique to vampire bats. In humans, for example, PAs help prevent blood clots and heart attacks. What's special about these activators in the vampire bat is their presence in saliva, and that's the only adaptation that the first species, the hairy-legged vampire bat, needs to prey on birds. The white-winged vampire bat and the common vampire bat are a little more complex because they target mammals. These two species have additional genetic adaptations that prevent their prey from detecting the PAs and releasing a blood-clotting agent. Finally, the common vampire bat has several copies of the PA gene. I don't know the hard facts behind how this works, but the article states that two copies of the PA gene are protected against mutation. However, that leaves several other copies available for future mutations, which opens up the door for the possibility of future adaptations. Aside from these genetic factors, these vampire bats also get some help from their physical characteristics. Unlike other bat species, vampire bats have very sharp teeth, for obvious reasons. Uh, In fact, the teeth are so sharp that most victims won't feel the effects until morning. What's really interesting, though, are their tongues. They have a specialized groove that allows the blood to flow to the bat's digestive system without any real physical effort. Uh, It's not like sipping through a straw or a dog lapping up water. The blood is able to travel by way of capillary action, which is so energy efficient. Uh, And What this means is that liquids can move into narrow spaces in opposition of gravity, and that's because of interactions between the liquid and solid molecules on a very small scale. That's kind of difficult to wrap your head around, but one common everyday demonstration for this is if you were to dip the corner of a paper towel or a sponge or an Oreo into a cup of water, more than just that little corner would get wet. The liquid would travel up quite a bit, and that's the result of capillary action. While I was looking to the value of blood as a food source, I've got some really great Google search history on my laptop. I found several animals that I wasn't aware of that relied on blood. Vampire bats are pretty well known to most, but I found some really unexpected bloodsuckers. This comes from a 2015 article written by Jason Biddle titled Vampire Birds Thirst for Blood. It's very much a clickbait title, but the article came with some interesting information and excellent pictures. There's a species of bird. I'm going to mess up the scientific name. It looks like Geospiza difficile, but it's commonly referred to as the sharp-beaked ground finch or vampire finch. Uh, So for my own purposes, that's what I'm going to refer to it as. Uh, So the life conditions are pretty rough on the Galapagos Islands, which are where these birds are found. The article makes a really great connection between the bird's diet and Darwin. The article states, quote, "...the finches of Galapagos are sort of famous for adapting." There are now more than a dozen finch species on the islands and each has a special way of surviving. Some eat seeds, others eat insects, and some have devised several different ways to carve up cacti. There's even a Tim the Tool Man Taylor finch that hops around the island grunting and using sticks, cactus spines, and other tools to pry insect larvae and spider eggs out of tree cavities. So with all the competition that exists for food on these small islands, It's really not that surprising that one of these finch species has adapted to getting its nutrients from blood. The vampire finches are pretty tame in terms of appearance. They weigh less than an ounce and they aren't set apart by bright colors or big scary talons or fangs coming out of their beaks. What does set them apart in the bird and the vampire world is their method of attack. They go after another bird, the blue-footed booby, which weighs 50 times more than they do. Unlike bats with sharp, precise teeth, or leeches, which mask their attacks with the help of cold water, these vampire finches just go for it. They hop on the back of their prey and just keep jabbing it with their beak until the skin breaks. Scientists don't quite understand why the blue-footed boobies put up with this, but there are a couple of theories out there. Some scientists say that the boobies just don't have any say in it, because the population density of the vampire finches is so high. Other scientists, though, suggest that the adult boobies endure the finches in an effort to protect their eggs. Uh, This sounded like a pretty solid justification until I read that the eggshells are too strong to be broken by the vampire finch's beak. Uh, But the finches are one step ahead of me with behavioral adaptations. If a vampire finch sees an unattended egg, he will stick his beak in the ground to serve as a sort of anchor, and then he'll just kick the egg until it rolls off of a cliff and busts open. It's a pretty intense bird. Uh, I won't go into too much more detail here, but the vampire finch doesn't have the market cornered for scary birds. The hood mockingbird, which is also found in the Galapagos, also derives some of its nutrients from blood. There's another bloodthirsty bird in sub-Saharan Africa, the oxpecker. It was once thought that oxpeckers had a symbiotic relationship with the large herbivores they go after meaning that both organisms would benefit. The herbivore, perhaps a giraffe, a buffalo, or an antelope, would benefit from the removal of ticks and other parasites, while the oxpecker would get an easily accessible buffet of bugs. Uh, But it turns out that these guys are bad news. A study led by Paul Weeks in Zimbabwe found that cattle in contact with the oxpeckers didn't have significantly fewer ticks than cattle that had no contact or limited contact with the oxpeckers. It was also found that the cattle pestered by the birds had a larger number of wounds, as well as wounds that reopened or failed to heal. If you're wanting to see what this looks like firsthand, there is a terrifying video embedded at the bottom of this article. It's 2 minutes and 55 seconds of a giraffe basically being attacked by these oxpeckers. The video is literally titled Birds Eat Giraffe Alive. You'd probably assume from my hosting of this podcast that I'm pretty good at tolerating grisly images, and you'd be right, Um, but this video was a tough one. No CGI, no special effects makeup, just birds slowly killing a giraffe. Uh, The only thing that caught me through the entire three minutes was the cringy narration. So if you want to subject yourself to it, uh, once again, The links to all my sources are available on the landing page for this episode, which you can navigate to from horrorscience.x10host.com. The last thing I want to touch on on this segment is a study conducted by Oscar J. Rojas and Hans H. Stein at the University of Illinois titled Nutritional Value of Animal Proteins Fed to Pigs. I'm not going to dive too deep into this source because I've spent a lot of time on bats and birds and the study has a lot of technical jargon and acronyms that go way over my head. Uh, Basically what I'm understanding from it though is that this study compares the differing effects of a meat and bone meal diet, a fish meal diet, a whey diet, and a dried blood product diet. The main reason I'm mentioning this study is just to indicate that blood can have nutritional value for species that aren't specifically evolved to digest it, uh, like the vampire bats and the sharp-beaked ground finches. If you're interested in the methods and the data that came out of this study though, the link will be up on the landing page. What I'm going to move into next is just a brief history of Morse code, how it began and how it evolved over time. Uh, If you haven't seen Let the Right One In, you're probably very confused as to why this would be a topic for the podcast. But fairly early on in the film, Oscar accepts that he's not going to be able to play outside on the playground with Ely during the daytime. Luckily for him, she's in the apartment right next door, so they have a shared wall. Oscar thinks, "Uh, duh, let's just use Morse code. Then it pops up again at the end of the movie, which is kind of ambiguous. Uh, The last scene shows Oscar on a train with a large wooden box, which we assume Ely is resting in. The two tap messages to each other, and the subtitles inform me that Oscar says kiss, and Ely replies with the Swedish word for small kiss. Uh, Like I said at the top of the show, this movie is all over the place, so my topics for this episode are as well. This information comes from a 2011 article written by Courtney Bellizzi titled A Forgotten History. Alfred Vail and Samuel Morse, and an article titled, History of Morse Code, which comes from an EDU blog written by Billy Miller at the College of Wooster in Ohio. I think it's a safe assumption that some listeners will be familiar with the name Samuel Morse, as he's almost universally recognized as the inventor of Morse code and the electromagnetic telegraph, which is the device Morse code was created for, allowing the message to travel across long distances. The machine and the code were tested on May 24, 1844, and the success revolutionized the speed of communication. But, the trial run between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore required two people, and that's where the story gets surprisingly sad and relatable. There was a second guy heavily involved in the invention of the electromagnetic telegraph and Morse code, Alfred Vail. In 1832, Vail was studying theology at New York University with the hopes of becoming a minister. In 1837, Samuel Morse made a trip to the university to give a demonstration on an early model of the electric telegraph. Vail became interested in the project and offered to work on the design of the machine and finance the patents in exchange for a share of interest. The first article, Bellizzi's, goes on to describe several of the contributions made by Vail. I'm not the most mechanically oriented person, uh, but Bellizzi gives three specific examples of improvements Vale made to the electromagnetic telegraph design. Vail also played a large role in the development of Morse code, which is uh, sort of the coding language for the telegraph. Morse's original idea was to have each digit, 0 through 9, represented by a set number of dots and dashes. Morse then decided that he was going to match specific words in the English language to specific numbers. For example, Miller's post states that the number 36 meant abash, 37 meant abashed, and 38 meant abashing. Morse created a telegraphic dictionary to keep track of all of this nonsense, and he set the goal of assigning unique numbers to 30,000 words. Then Vail looked it over and basically said that's dumb. The system was way too complicated for anyone to develop an interest in learning it and communication took way too long. In the span of one minute only five words could be transmitted. Vail did some brainstorming and said how about this get rid of the numbers and just assign each letter in the English alphabet its own combination of dots and dashes. Thankfully, the two decided to give the most commonly used letters the shortest combinations. When the final draft of American Morse code was finished in 1844, the speed of communication had doubled from Morse's initial code. Despite Vail's contributions, Morse is the name we remember. And this whole story just reminds me of those group projects in high school where you do all the work, but another person gets the credit. Uh, If I was Vail, I would have been mad. But in her article, Belize wrote that, after reading through the letters and notebooks left behind by Vale, it seems that he wasn't too interested in recognition. He was just happy to be part of something, which is pretty noble. Uh, The next subject I want to dive into is hydrochloric acid. If you haven't seen the film, I'll give a quick rundown for why this is relevant. If you remember from the Serial Killing Team segment, for the first portion of the film, Ely has a man named Hokan go out and gather blood for her. Surprisingly, the imagery isn't really too vivid, and you kind of have to infer his methods. It looks like Hokan hangs them upside down before slitting their throats, and there's no vampire bat tongue funnel, so he just kind of lets the blood fill up a jug that he sticks below the person. This is where it gets a little unclear. Uh, There are newspaper reports and talk around the town about murder victims being found, but Hokan also carries around a jug of hydrochloric acid. I assumed that this was to burn the victim after death to get rid of any evidence he might have left behind on the body, Uh, but that's not really in line with the earlier narrative of the newspaper articles, so if any of you have any other explanations for this, I'd love to hear your thoughts. But the important thing is, he's just got this acid. The first thing I wanted to look into was how feasible it would be for a normal, average Joe to get this stuff. I was ready to buckle down and research illegal chemical trades, Uh, but it turns out that you can just buy this stuff on Amazon. So that's that portion of this segment, very exciting. Uh, (laughs) The next thing I wanted to look into was just how toxic this chemical is, and this information comes from the National Center for Biotechnology Information's PubChem Compound Database. The entry is fittingly called hydrochloric acid. If you're really into chemistry, this is the site for you. It's got sections like 2D structure, identifiers, pharmacology, and related literature. I'm not too into chemistry though, so I'm just going to go over some of the highlights here. Hydrogen chloride is a gas that's made of one atom of chlorine and one atom of hydrogen. It becomes hydrochloric acid when it dissolves in water. It's a highly corrosive, colorless liquid that gives off a strong, irritating smell, which is a pretty strong sign, to me at least, not to pour it on somebody. The vapors it gives off are pretty intense. Short-term inhalation will lead to eye, nose, and respiratory tract irritation and inflammation, and pulmonary edema, which is the buildup of liquid in the lungs. Long-term exposure isn't any better, leading to inflammation of the stomach lining and skin, chronic bronchitis, and photosensitization, which basically means that the skin becomes more sensitive to UV rays, leading to an increased risk of sunburns and cancer. Uh, If you all remember this from high school chemistry, there will be a lot of red warning signs on the side of a bottle of hydrochloric acid, and I'm just going to read off the hazard codes as the site has them listed. Okay, so H226, flammable liquid and vapor, Warning, flammable liquids, category 3. H304 may be fatal if swallowed and enters airways. Danger, aspiration hazard, category 1. H315 causes skin irritation, warning, skin corrosion irritation, category 2. H317 may cause an allergic skin reaction, warning, sensitization, skin, category 1. H319, causes serious eye irritation. Warning, serious eye damage, eye irritation, Category 2A. H335, may cause respiratory irritation. Warning, specific target organ toxicity, single exposure. Respiratory tract irritation, Category 3. H400, very toxic to aquatic life. Warning, hazardous to the aquatic environment, acute hazard, Category 1. And... H410, very toxic to aquatic life with lasting effects. Warning, hazardous to the aquatic environment, long-term hazard, category one. Um, All of these hazards and categories sound pretty serious to me, and I'm still just really confused about why people are allowed to buy this stuff on Amazon. Uh, Luckily, the PubChem Compound Database lists some of the first aid tips for you if you ever come in contact with this stuff. So if you inhale it, move to fresh air, stay warm, don't talk, get immediate medical attention, and have someone there to start artificial respiration if you stop breathing. If you manage to accidentally swallow hydrochloric acid, you need to drink a glass of water or milk, not throw up, um, that was in all caps so it's a pretty important step, and get some medical help. If you manage to get this stuff in your eyes, first of all, shame on you for not following the lab's safety rules. Carol didn't wear safety glasses, and now she doesn't need them. But uh, if you find yourself with hydrochloric acid in your eyes, flush your eyes with water for 15 minutes and, once again, get some medical attention. Finally, if this stuff spills on your skin, which is a little more reasonable, um, immediately hop in a shower or hose or whatever running water that's available and take off the contaminated clothes as you're rinsing off. Call an ambulance. That's a repeated trend here for this first aid. And use soap on the affected area for 15 minutes. So all that first aid stuff is great if you're in a lab sitting, but what about Hakan's victims? Just random people in parks and forests and locker rooms. Uh, for this, I turned to research on acid attacks. This is a pretty serious topic, but I think it's definitely one that's worth mentioning. While I was talking about my research topics with a friend, She didn't know that acid attacks are a real thing that are still happening today. So, although this will give a little insight into the movie, my main purpose in including this is education and awareness. This isn't a podcast about politics or government or culture, but it's still terrifying that acid attacks are a reality for some people today. So, the source for this portion is a 2013 article written by Tom de Castilla for BBC titled, How Many Acid Attacks Are There? So, from this article, it seems like a lot of people were in the same ignorance boat as my friend before a few high-profile attacks were carried out upon Westerners. Castilla gives the example of Katie Piper, a United Kingdom citizen whose former boyfriend threw acid on her face in 2008. It also gives a brief report of an attack carried out against Christy Trupp and Katie Gee. These events, and a few others like them, did have the effect of increasing international knowledge and demands surrounding acid attacks. It's hard to imagine why anyone would want to do something like this, but the article attempts to explain the reasoning as best it can. One of Castilla's sources, plastic surgeon Mohamed Jawad, stated that these attacks, which most often involve sulfuric acid, are carried out not to kill the victim, but to mark them for life and destroy their identity. Jawad claims that these attacks are a form of domestic violence, stemming from a lack of female empowerment. Statistics given by Kestia support this. 75 to 80% of victims are women or girls. Of the female victims, 30% are under the age of 18. The most common motives? Rejected marriage proposals and sexual advances. According to the Acid Survivors Trust International, ASTI, 1,500 acid attacks are formally reported each year around the globe. However, acid attacks are very underreported. Many women already feel powerless and defeated, and several are afraid of further punishment or harm if they get the police involved. These attacks aren't spread evenly around the world. Uh, For example, in England in 2011, there were 105 hospital admissions as a result of assault by a corrosive substance. In contrast, ASTI estimates that 1,000 attacks occur each year in India alone. Unfortunately, India's government has a poor reputation for prosecuting these crimes. In contrast, Pakistan and Bangladesh have really narrowed in on this problem as countries. Pakistan reports between 250 and 300 acid attacks each year. Improved legislation has increased reporting by 300%, which is one of the first steps in solving this problem. Bangladesh brought results by tightening up the rules for selling acid and introducing the death penalty for offenders. The number of attacks dropped from 492 in 2002 to less than 75 in 2012. What acid attacks represent in terms of let the right one in is the impact hydrochloric acid would have upon someone who didn't follow proper first aid procedures. At one point in the film, Hakan is all ready to kill somebody in a school locker room when he gets cornered. He knows the victim's two friends are headed his way and there's only one exit. So in an effort to protect his identity and, by proxy, Elise. Hokan spills the hydrochloric acid on his own face. The important thing with acid burns is quick treatment. Unlike burns from fires, acid burns will continue to worsen until that acid is neutralized. In a hospital or a well-equipped lab, hypertonic saline can be used to neutralize the acid. The problem with acid attacks, though, is that they don't happen in these neat places. For the most part, these attacks occur in developing countries. That means that getting access to water to immediately rinse the skin and eyes and the travel to a burn unit can be difficult. The article mentions specifically a woman in Burma who had to walk for 24 hours before receiving treatment. This type of violence leads to permanent consequences. Blindness is a very real possibility. Victims may require dozens of surgeries, which comes with a financial burden. Katie Piper, who was mentioned earlier, has had almost 100 surgeries. Finally, acid attacks harm the victim socially and emotionally. First of all, it's obviously a traumatic experience, but it can also lead to feelings of isolation. Sometimes it's family members like husbands and in-laws that carry out these attacks. That's as deep as I'm going to dive into the issue of acid attacks, but it is such a huge, important topic. I'm going to include a link to the website for Acid Survivors Trust International on the landing page for this episode and that site has more information, statistics, and ways to donate our volunteer. So the final thing I want to cover in this episode is the issue of how long people can hold their breath. I know this episode in particular has been all over the place, so let me explain how this fits in for those who haven't seen Let the Right One In. If you remember from the top of the episode, one of Oscar's key dilemmas is a group of school bullies. The head bully, Connie, is really embarrassed because Oscar followed Ely's advice of standing up for himself and hit Connie in the face. It's safe to say that Connie wasn't expecting that because he went down. So farther on in the story, towards the end, Connie enlists the help of his older brother, Jimmy, who is a true bad boy. Uh, The group and their new ringleader manage to get Oscar alone in the school pool after they start a fire outside to lure the teacher. Uh, And this is where it gets so intense. Jimmy pulls out a knife and tells Oscar that if he doesn't hold his breath underwater for 3 minutes, he's going to jab his eyes out. All bullying is bad, but this is next level. 3 minutes. Varsapå andas. 4. Three, two, one. So, I know from my own experience with breath-holding contests that I can last for maybe a minute. And that doesn't take into account the physical symptoms of stress I would be experiencing if my eyes were on the line. With that considered, it's probably unrealistic for a stressed kid with little lungs who didn't have any prep time to be able to stay underwater for three minutes. What I was really interested in seeing, though, was what the record for underwater breath-holding was. And this information comes from a BBC Future article written by Frank Swain in 2014, titled, How Long Can You Go Without Air? According to the article, free divers who try to dive as deep as they can into water without scuba gear typically make it for three to four and a half minutes. So, this confirms that Oscar probably would have died in his situation. It's possible for trained divers to stay under this long because of practice and something called mammalian dive reflex. The record, however, stands at a staggering 22 minutes underwater. Danish freediver Stig Seversen was able to achieve this time in 2012 in a swimming pool in London. A number of factors contributed to this success. The first was the body's ability to adapt over time. For example, a study of fishermen in Brazil found that those who dove for fish had significantly larger lungs than the fishermen who stayed on the surface. Another example comes from Japanese and Korean pearl divers, whose bodies release an extra 10% of red blood cells during dives. Another factor in Severson's time was his metabolic rate. The less movement you perform, and the more relaxed you are, the less oxygen you'll require and the less carbon dioxide you'll produce. Staying still in a motionless pool in London is less physically taxing than swimming or diving to some great depth. Lastly, before Severson got into the pool, he hyperventilated with pure oxygen for 20 minutes. Oscar did not have that luxury. What this allowed Severson to do was saturate his body with oxygen and scrub his lungs of carbon dioxide. Like the article points out, It's pretty obvious to most of us that a lack of oxygen is a bad thing, but a buildup of carbon dioxide is just as awful. According to the article, if we don't exhale the waste carbon dioxide, it will build up in our blood and become acidic, leading to muscle spasms, disorientation, racing heart, and death. Do not try this at home, kids. Back to Let the Right One In, uh, if you want to know if Oscar makes it, you'll just have to watch the film or YouTube that specific scene. It's got some great sound design, so it's definitely worth a watch. So that's it for Episode 6. This episode was pretty wild in terms of topics. Uh, We started with medical conditions related to the vampire sunlight myth before moving into child-adult serial killing teams. Then we looked into the adaptations that have allowed other species to survive on blood. Next came the history of Morse code, followed by the impact of hydrochloric acid on skin. And we closed with something a little bit lighter, the world record for someone holding their breath. As always, if you're listening on iTunes, feel free to subscribe and leave a rating or a review. If you missed the website earlier, which will have links to all of the sources I referenced throughout the episode, that information can be found at horrorscience.x10host.com. Also, the podcast has a SoundCloud account with audio from all of the episodes. That profile name is Horrorscience. And finally, if you've got any comments on this episode or suggestions for future films, you can send an email out to horrorsciencepodcast at gmail.com or send a tweet to at PO. Thanks for listening, and be on the lookout for a new episode in two weeks.